0: I know I'll never get over it and I'm glad I won't, but I always get a lump in my throat and I kind of hold back uh, some tears when patriotic music is played, particularly when great music about the land in which we live is played or sung. It just uh, does something to me and uh, inspires me and encourages me. I... I am so grateful for the privilege of being raised in the land that we were raised in. And I'm grateful for the influences that have been exerted upon my life. I'm sure all of us feel a very deep sense of patriotic commitment to this land of ours. I hope we do. Uh, My forefathers, uh, none of them were career military people, uh, but uh, my forefathers fought in the Revolutionary War, And then in the war between the states, some on the north and some on the south. And uh, my father in World War I was in France. I was in World War II. My brother was in the Air Force during the Korean War. And uh, I still consider myself a part of the Marine Corps. In fact, we never refer to ourselves as ex-Marines, but as former Marines We feel like we're still a part of the core, and I believe you feel the same. If we were really needed, if we could be of help, if we could fill some slot, if we could perform some service, if we were seriously threatened as we were during World War II, well, I'd go again, you'd go again. We all would, I believe. I'd be ready uh, to sign up and go to meet whatever crisis we need to protect the freedoms that God has blessed us with in this land they have been bought with the price of blood. May we never, ever forget. Remembrance is the wellspring of virtue, but forgetfulness is the fountain of vice. If we forget where we've come from, we forget the price that has been paid for the benefits and blessings we enjoy today. We are on the road to oblivion. And it will only be preserved if you and I work in all that we do and say, work for those causes that make for freedom and for justice and for love in the world. And the source of that, the source of all of that is not July the 4th, 1776, the ultimate source of all of the blessings we have come right out of a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was there that God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, laid down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. And he came to bring us love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and gentleness, and goodness, and faith, and meekness, and self-control. These three remain. Faith, hope, love, and the greatest is love. And the basis of the values that you and I have emanate from the person, the life, and the ministry, the words, the work, and the continuing presence Of the Lord Jesus Christ among us. There are three words that come to my mind when I think about this day and have thought about it a lot and what to say. My heart's already been touched. My spirit has already been lifted. It's marvelous music that we sang together and then this incredible message and song by the Sunshine Singers and they have brought sunshine into our hearts and lives, I'm reminded of how many people had commitment and compassion and courage, that trinity of attitudes created by the love of God in our hearts. Commitment. Commitment to God. Commitment to those values that make us who we are. Commitment to one another. Commitment to active service. I don't believe anyone ever retires as a soldier of the cross. We may not be on the front lines as we were when we were younger, but I don't believe anyone is ever discharged from the army of Christ. Some may go AWOL and they do that at their own peril, but I don't believe any of us ever retire as soldiers of the cross and followers of the king. Never. Never. Look at our forefathers I mean, you go back into the history of uh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and you look at all of these people, they embodied conviction, commitment, compassion, courage. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, these incredible words talk about the heroes of our faith. They mentioned some of those that, are all, that all of us know about, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Moses. Uh, All of those people are incredible. Joshua leading the people of uh, God into the promised land. Jeremiah being thrown into prison. Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. All of the sacrifices that they made because they were followers of Almighty God and they believed in a God of love and of righteousness and of judgment. Listen to this. What more shall I say from the 11th chapter of Hebrews I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes on the ground so that you and I might live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We owe these people our allegiance. And their blood and their spirit and their devotion and their commitment and their courage and their compassion needs to flow through our spiritual veins as Christians in this world and followers of the Lord. I took the time to look through the book of Acts, talking about commitment and courage, compassion. Uh, It's called the Acts of the Apostles. It could be subtitled The Arrests of the Apostles. They spent more time in jail than they did in church. Fourth chapter, Peter and John were arrested. Fifth chapter, they were arrested again, and this time they were beaten. Sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Acts, Stephen was. Imprisoned and then stoned to death. Eighth chapter of Acts. Wholesale arrests of a lot of Christians. Many of them had to flee to save their lives. What happened? The church then began to spread out all over the world. The twelfth chapter, James and Peter were put into jail. And James, one of the first three, the closest three to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. John, James' brother was John. James was martyred. The first apostle to be martyred at the order of Herod in the 12th chapter of Acts. 16th chapter, Paul and Silas arrested. 17th chapter, arrested again. 18th chapter, Paul again in prison, on trial. And on and on and on it goes. Here you see the very personal embodiment of the kind of commitment and compassion and courage that you and I must have if the church is to be what God wants it to be in a world where there is, as we read in the Scripture a little earlier, when we read together from Ephesians, we've war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. One of my favorite writers is William Manchester and he's written many, many books and I'm grateful. He wrote uh, The American Caesar, he wrote uh, A World Lit Only by Fire, which is the story of Magellan, wrote about Churchill, he wrote about the Kennedys, uh, one, I believe one of the great uh, historians of our time. And one of, his, one of my favorite books is uh, entitled Goodbye Darkness. This is his testimony. This is his story. William Manchester was a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. He was wounded. He had that proverbial million-dollar wound and was put in the hospital and then left the hospital against orders and went back and joined his outfit on uh, Okinawa and uh, was nearly killed. And I want to read you some of the things that he had to say about himself. Goodbye, Darkness. Why the title? Because when he came home and had been home a number of years and was a very successful man, a very successful writer, he began to have a dream. He began to have a dream that became a nightmare to him. It persisted. He writes about two men, one coming up from one side of the mountain, the other coming up from the other side of the mountain or the hill. Two men were trudging upward from opposite sides. One wearing muddy battle dungarees and the camouflaged helmet cover that we wore to distinguish us from our army infantry, was the scrawny, Adabran yellow, adabrine was what was given for malaria as you know, adabrine yellow, cocky, young sergeant of marines, who had borne my name in 1945. The other person coming up from the other side of the mountain, the other was the portly, balding, Brooks-brothered man, who bears that name today. Do You see the picture? 18-year-old that he was, meeting the much older man that he had become. They met on the crest, facing each other in the night like mirror objects, but their moods were very different. The older man, ravaged by the artillery of time, the outside corners of his eyes drawn down, and the hooded lids of age, was diffident, unsure of himself. The sergeant's eyes, on the other hand, flamed like wildfire. He angrily demanded an accounting of what had happened in the third of a century since he laid down his arms. Promises had been made to him. He had expected a nobler America and for himself a more purposeful career than the pursuit of lost causes. John Kennedy, Bob Kennedy, Martin Luther King, many others, all of them irretrievably, irredeemably, irrevocably gone So the sergeant felt betrayed. He hadn't anticipated that his country would be transformed into what it has become. Nor his generation, his generation, into docile old men who greedily follow the Dow Jones average. Then I would lie in darkness trembling beneath the sheet wondering who was right. The uncompromising sergeant or the compromiser he had become. Here was the ultimate generation gap. A man divided against his youth. Troubled, I saw no way to heal the split. He said he would tried for years to write about the war, but in vain. He said it was too deep. He said, I couldn't reach it. He said, I knew it had to be done. And then he says, a man is all the people he has been. Isn't that a great phrase? A man is all the people he has been. Some recollections never die. They lie in one's subconscious, squirreled away, biding their time. I could think of one but one solution. I had to revisit the Pacific. And so he did. And that's the book of this story. He went to all of the places where the Marines had landed, wanting to catch the spirit, what happened more about it, to understand it more completely. Today's youth cannot understand it. Mine, I suppose, was the last generation to believe audacity in combat is a virtue. The mystery troubled me and baffled me. On Okinawa, On Saturday, June the 2nd, 1945, I suffered a superficial gunshot wound just above my right kneecap and was shipped back to a field hospital. Mine was what we called a million-dollar wound. Though I could hear the long toms in the distance, I was warm, dry, and safe. My machismo was intact. I was simply out of combat. The next day, I heard that my regiment was going to land behind enemy lines on Oroku Peninsula. I left my cot, jumped hospital, hitchhiked to the front, and made the landing on Monday. Why had I returned to terror? I was diffident, I was indifferent toward rank. And I certainly sought no glory. Shakespeare wrote, We owe God a death. To be sure, I was not an inept fighter. I was lean and hard and tough and proud. I had tremendous reserves of stamina. I never bolted. I was a crack shot. I had a shifty, shambling run and a lovely eye for what the Duke of Wellington called dead ground. That is a spot shielded from flat trajectory enemy fire by a natural obstacle like a tree or a rock. To this day I check emergency exits immediately after in- registering in a hotel and in bars you will find me occupying a corner table with my flank secure. That was the sum of my military skills. I had walked through the valley of the shadow of death and had been terribly frightened. Afterward, those of us in my unit who had survived received a document from Secretary of Navy James Forrestal citing us for gallantry, valor, valor, tenacity, and extraordinary heroism against enemy Japanese forces. But those shining words didn't really apply to me. Indeed, at times it seems to me that they applied to no one except the dead. By the summer of 1978, I knew I had to return to the islands. I had to find out. Find out the fact that I couldn't define what I saw made the journey inevitable. So once more into the breach, but first let me introduce myself to myself. Then he writes the book, and I come to the closing words Terrible battle on Okinawa. More marine casualties there than any other island. And he was there to fight on Sugarloaf Hill. He went there and went back, and it's now a neighborhood. Houses built all around this hill. Some of you may have been there on that day or those days that they were there. A number of my friends were there. Sugarloaf would merely look like a height upon which something extraordinary happened long ago. That is the impression of housewives along the street when we ring their doorbells and ask them. They were wide-eyed when we tell them that they are absolutely right, that those lumps and ripples once were shell holes and foxholes, now a mantle of thick green grass covers all. I remember Carl Sandburg wrote, I am the grass, let me work. Up I go, no gasping this time, and find two joined pieces of wood at the top, surveyor's markers. I take a deep breath, suddenly realizing that the last time I was here, anyone standing where I now stand would have had a life expectancy of about seven seconds. Today, the ascent of Sugarloaf takes a few minutes. In 1945, it took 10 days and caused 7,547 marine casualties. Beneath my feet, where mud had been deeply veined with human blood, the healing mantle of turf. I am the grass. I the Lord and the Savior and thy Redeemer. Sacred heart of the crucified Jesus, take away this murdering hate and give us thine eternal love. And then in one of those great thundering jolts in which a man's real motives are revealed to him in an electrifying vision, I understood at last why I jumped hospital that Sunday 35 years ago and in violation of orders returned to the front an almost certain death it was an act of love those men on the line were my family my home they were closer to me than I can say closer than any friends had been or ever would be They had never let me down and I couldn't do it to them. I had to be with them rather than let them die and me live with the knowledge that I might have saved them. Men, I now know, do not fight for flag or country, for the Marine Corps or glory or any other abstraction. They fight for one another. Any man in combat who lacks comrades who will die for him or for whom he is willing to die is not a man at all. He is truly damned. As I stand on that crest, I remember a passage from Scott Fitzgerald, World War I, he wrote, which was the world's last love battle. He said, men could never do that. In this generation. But Fitzgerald died just a year before Pearl Harbor. Had he lived, he would have seen his countrymen united in a greater love than he had ever known. Actually, love was only part of it. Among other things, we had to be tough, too. To fight World War II, you had to have been tempered and strengthened in the 1930s depression by a struggle for survival. In 1940, two out of every five draftees had been rejected, most of them victims of malnutrition. Can you remember an America like that? You had to know that your whole generation, unlike the Vietnam generation, was in this together. Should have been together then. No strings were pulled for anybody. The four Roosevelt brothers were in uniform, presidents, four sons, in uniform. And the sons of Harry Hopkins, FDR's closest advisor, and Leverett Saltonstall, one of the most powerful Republicans in the Senate, their sons served in the Marine Corps as enlisted men and were killed in action. But devotion overarched all this. It was a bond woven by many strands. You also need nationalism. The absolute conviction that the United States was the envy of all other nations. You felt sure that all lands, given our democracy and our know-how, could shine as radiantly as we did. Esteem was personal too. You assumed that if you could come through this ordeal, You would age with dignity, respected as well as adored by your children. Courage was a virtue. Mothers were beloved. Fathers obeyed. Marriage a sacrament. Pregnancy meant expulsion from school or dismissal from a job. The boys responsible for the crimes of impregnating had to marry the girls. Couples did not keep house before they were married and there could be no wedding until the girl's father had approved. You assumed the gentlemen always stood and removed their hats when a woman entered a room. The suggestion that some of them might resent being called ladies would have confounded you. You needed a precise relationship between the sexes so that no one questioned the duty of boys to cross the seas and fight while girls wrote them cheerful letters from home. All these and God bless America and Christmas and Hanukkah the certitude that victory in the war would assure their continuance into perpetuity. All this led you into battle and sustained you as you fought and comforted you if you fell and if it came to that justified your death to all Who loved you as you had loved them? Later, the rules would change. But we didn't know that then. We didn't know. We didn't know, did we? We've forgotten. The rules haven't changed. We have. The fact that a lot of people break the rules doesn't mean that they've been changed. They don't break the rules. The rules break them. They break us. In summary, he says, I did it for love. I did it for my friends. Greater love hath no man than this, and he lay down his life for his friends may the rule of love again agape love characterize america and i believe the only way it can be characterized can be realized is for us to remember something that i think our contemporary society is forgetting and that is that we are temporal people we have lost the sense of the eternal the eternal some of the old preachers back in the 19th century described preaching as preaching as preparation for death Unless you have dealt with death, you'll never be able to deal with life. Unless we have dealt with the fact of our mortality, that someday we're going to meet God, and we're going to be held accountable for the deeds done in the flesh. I believe a lot of people believe everybody else is going to die but them. And they see people all around them dying, but somehow they feel that they are impervious to this. That somehow, by the grace of God, they've been immunized. Not so. Not so. We are, as Dr. Truett used to say, we are eternity-bound men and women. And we are. We are bound for eternity. We've got to be prepared for eternal life. These three short, four scarred, three Short years and ten, however they might be. Go quickly. Swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. When my boys were small and we were in Honolulu, I took them to Punchbowl National Cemetery. I guess they were about ten and seven, maybe twelve, nine, something like that. And I wanted to visit the grave of one of my good friends of the Marine Corps, Clarence Becker, who had been killed on Iwo Jima. And I wanted the boys to see the people that made a sacrifice so that they'd have the life that they have, And that I'd have the life that I have. And I tried to help them see that, but for the grace of God, I could have been in Clarence's place. He was a remarkable guy from St. Louis, and he was an artist and a musician, and a boxer. I mean, he was just one of those guys that everybody liked and everybody thought that they were his best friend. You know, they're just, they're people like that. And there's Clarence Becker. I said, boys, I could have been there, and if I'd been where Clarence is, you wouldn't be here. All the blessings that you have and we have in this land because people like Clarence Becker gave their life so that we could enjoy it. We need to perpetuate it. And I I hope that impressed them. I don't know. You you don't know what. It's hard for the generation behind you to understand what you've been through unless you've been in it, isn't it? It's very difficult to get it across. Tom Brokaw does it, I believe, magnificently in that incredible book that he has written, The Greatest Generation. But the thing that got me, and I still get chills when I think about it, We were walking across the cemetery, across those graves, and you know they're all uh, ground level, and about two rows over and one row up, I could walk to it right now if I were at the Punchbowl Cemetery, I looked down there and I saw a man, his name, and his last name was Buckner from somewhere in East Texas, a little town in East Texas, I don't remember. He too had been killed on either Iwo or Okinawa. And you you see your name, that's that's my mother's maiden name, my given name, you see your name on a tombstone and I guarantee you it'll get your attention. I'm not here to frighten you. I'm here to try to enlist you into the kingdom of God Because someday your name is going to be there. And that's not so important. The important thing is, is your name written down there? Have you registered your name in heaven? Have you enlisted in the kingdom of God? Have you committed yourself to Christ as your commander in chief? If you have, I urge you today to recommit yourself to Him. Rededicate yourself to Him. For these are days that try men's souls. And if ever there was a day when the church needed to be bright and alive and energetic and moving forward, not retreating, not just holding the ground, but taking the ground for God to move out and make a difference in our world so that our children and my grandchildren and your grandchildren can enjoy the world that people have died for. May you and I be faithful in our generation as others have been faithful to bring to us the blessings that we have. Friends, it's in our hands, and we need you. Christ needs you to belong to him by faith. This church needs you to sign up and be a part and get into the ranks and get into basic training and to get into the battle for winning men to Christ and making a difference in San Antonio and around the world. I'll be here I'm an enlisting man this morning. I am trying to enlist people into the kingdom of God. And I can promise you something on the word of Jesus Christ himself. If you enlist, you'll have eternal life. You can't beat those benefits. I invite you to come. Let's stand and sing.